Turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalms 105, 105 within God's Word, and we'll turn there in a minute. Psalm 105 as we continue with our message series, down in the prison but destined for the palace. Amen. Uh, a brand new brand new convict was led to his new prison cell. Cell number 102. And in cell 102 was an old, withered, gnarled of a man. And this new cellmate, this old man, told the new convict, look at me. Look at me. I used to live the life of Riley. I used to have it all, cars, boats, mansions, life on the Riviera, whining and dining, beautiful women. I lived the life of Riley. The young new convict said, well, what happened to you? The old man said, Riley wanted back his credit cards. I want to take you back 3,800 years ago. I want to take you to the ancient prison of Tar in Sardu, Egypt. Prisoners of these prisons of that day and time were there not because of a passive nation that was against capital punishment. They were there because their torturers, their victimizers, wanted them to suffer. You were given just enough food to survive. You were left there to rot, to suffer. It was a slow death, not an easy death. In this pit of suffering, our eyes fasten on a young man who's been there for Ten years. And the Bible says this of him. Did you realize this? There in prison, verse 18, they hurt his feet with fetters. He wore ankle chains. And we can imagine the flesh had been infected, sore. And they placed his neck in an iron collar. Did you realize that? As an animal. And he had been that way for 10 years. And the issue of the hour for this young man and for you and I here this morning is this. Will we choose to be bitter or better? Bitter or better? If you'd like to take notes with me this morning, take out your sermon study guide and, and just fill in the blanks. This is definitely a teaching word this morning, a practical word, but to me, one of the most pivotal words that any person could ever receive from the Word of God. And fill in the blanks with me, beginning with point one, Egyptian prisons. Write that down. Egyptian prisons were nothing like America's country club prisons today. Egyptian prisons where a prisoner's fate was worse than death. 
As we enter this prison of 3,800 years ago, I would like to ask this young man who's now 30 years of age, I'd want to know, why? How did you end up here? We can imagine his eyes welling up with tears. We can imagine sobs <laughs> racking his body as he convulsively weeps. I'm here. I'm here because my brothers hated me. They sold me into slavery. And then my master's wife tried to seduce me. I refused. She cried rape. And my master throw, threw me in this place. He left me here to rot. On top of it all, two years ago, two years ago, Pharaoh's wine taster ended up here. He had a nightmare. I interpreted it for him. I foretold unto him that in three days he would be out of prison and back into the palace. And sure enough, he was promoted back to the palace. On his way to the palace, I shouted out after him, Remember me! Remember me! Give a kind word to Pharaoh about me! Rescue me! But he forgot me. And here I am, betrayed by my brothers, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife forsaken, forgotten by Pharaoh's wine taster. Suddenly, our interview is interrupted as the prison warden strides up to the jail cell door, looks at the young man and says, Son, this, might, this must be your lucky day. You're out of here. We're letting you go. You're free. You've been called to meet with Pharaoh. Get cleaned up and shaven. You're going to Pharaoh. Sure enough, the young man, 30 years of age, is cleaned up, shaven, new clothes put upon him. He's brought into the audience of Pharaoh, the mightiest ruler in the ancient world in that day and time. Pharaoh has had a nightmare. This young man interprets it, and he not only interprets the dream, but he foretells the future, and he gives a, a disaster plan, a strategy that is both God-given and God-granted, a strategy that will rescue an empire. In fact, indeed, the entire Middle East region. And in one day, one day, this young man is promoted from the prison to the palace. And one day, the chains come off, and he is riding in Pharaoh's chariot. And one day, this man who was less than nothing, now everybody is bowing before him because the prisoner has been promoted to be a prime minister, the chief grand vizier of Egypt. Everyone obeys him and bows before him. He is the most powerful ruler next only to Pharaoh. And my question, my issue, 
is this. How did this young man position himself to receive such promotion, such prosperity? How did he position himself to receive the palace instead of the prison? How did he go from bitter to better? Years go by. Pharaoh grants him a wife. He marries the daughter of the high priest of Ra. He has two sons. We'll talk about the one later on. Now the famine has hit. We're two years into the famine. People can't even plant any crops. There's no plowing. There's no harvesting. It's desperate. It's a crisis that has not only gripped Egypt, but it's gripped the Middle East. But because of this young man, because of his God-given ability to interpret dreams and see the future, and it comes from God, because of his God-given wisdom, Egypt has been spared. Egypt is in prosperity. Egypt is overflowing with food. And the nations of the world are coming to Egypt. Yea, they're coming to the palace and bowing before this young man. And buying food and making Egypt wealthy beyond imagination. On a particular day in this famine, the massive bronze doors open up. And in strides the grand vizier of Egypt. The man who used to be a prisoner but is now the prime minister. And everyone bows and hits the dust, groveling, crying out, Hail, vice president of Egypt. The Grand Vizier, he sits upon the throne as representatives of the Middle East come before him. Suddenly his eyes focus and fasten on ten shabby-looking shepherds, Hebrew shepherds from the land of Canaan. Ten brothers. And he immediately recognizes them. He calls them before him. They come before this prime minister of Egypt, trembling, and they hit the dust, and they grovel before him in obeisance and worship. Quietly, calmly, but heavy with emotion, he said, come close to me. Unparalleled in any dramatic Hollywood movie is what happens next. As this young man says, I am Joseph. I am your brother. The Bible says they were in such shock. They were in such disbelief. 
He had to say it again. This brings us to Genesis chapter 45. Read it with me. I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But don't be angry with yourselves that you did this to me, for God did it. He sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. These two years of famine will grow to seven, during which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God has sent me here to keep you and your families alive so that you become a great nation. Yes, it was God who sent me here, not you. He has made me a counselor to Pharaoh and manager of this entire nation, ruler of all the land of Egypt. There you have it. Promoted from the prison to the palace. Promoted from being a prisoner to being prime minister. And my question to Joseph is this. How could God do that for you? And I believe that his answer would be this. Because I chose to be better instead of bitter. The most frequent pathway, write it down with me this morning, the most frequent pathway for bitterness to enter us is through deep-seated resentment, especially to those closest to us. Jesus said offenses will come. You can't live the human life without being offended. It's how you're going to respond to the offenses. But the offenses, the hurts that pierce our hearts the most are those that come from those closest to us, friends and family. Historians will tell you that the bloodiest wars are civil wars. The police will tell you the most dangerous cases, calls that they're called out on are domestic violence issues. Attorneys will tell you that the most vicious court cases are divorce cases. Divorce court. You see, family and friends, it is said, they know where to place the balm to heal you or the bomb to kill you. Maybe you were told off by a sibling who thought they'd give you a little piece of their mind, but what they gave you was a little piece of hell. Maybe... The greatest days of your life was the birth of your child. And yet today, their rebellion and rejection has been like a knife in your heart. Maybe your hurting heart was caused by a parent, a perfectionistic parent, a critical parent, an absent parent, an abusive parent, and even though they're, they're even in their grave, the memory still haunts you. With bitterness. Maybe like Joseph, you've been so totally rejected by family that it's become a black hole of pain in your heart. Or perhaps for you it was a marriage altar. Vows of till death do us part turned into divorce do us part. And the betrayal, the rejection, for you is blacker than night. And so bitterness has become a contagion, an infection that is 
poisoned your soul. Bitterness spews out of your mouth as you cry out, uh, I was the one who was left all alone. I was the one who was left with unpaid bills. I was the one left to raise the children. I pray an early grave upon you. Bitterness. It's a poison. It's an infection. It's a contagion that is spawned where? Mark it down. Satan effectively uses bitterness to destroy us physically, psychologically, and spiritually. You see, we weren't created to handle bitterness. We weren't designed to handle resentment and, and hate. The creator of creators, he created you, he programmed you for love. For love. Who said this? Love your enemies. Who said that? Who said... Bless those who persecute you. Who said that when you're hurt or offended, turn the other cheek? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus reaffirmed the fact that you and I were created as vessels of love. It goes against your programming. It goes against your wiring to get bitter, to hate, to, to, to have an unforgiving spirit. You were designed by God for love. It's not just the right thing to do to love your enemies. It's the healthy thing to do. Turn to your friend sitting next to you right now and say, I'm a love machine. Oh, hallelujah. I've got some couples right now having a spiritual experience. I'm a love machine. That's it. God designed you that way. Oh, write it down. Choosing the pathway of bitterness is playing the part of the fool. Playing the part of the fool. My parents uh, are retired in Florida, Lakeland, Florida. Dad will be uh, 86 this September. Mama will be 82 this year. And they're both still riding bicycles and walking, not running, walking. Now, uh, mom's favorite place to walk and for her husband, my dad, to ride a bicycle is not your ordinary park. Dad is fit to be tied with this, but he goes along because he's a wise husband. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But mom's most favorite, peaceful, serene place for them to walk is the local cemetery. I know it's morbid, but it's that side of the family. They are definitely head-oriented. The Chris's are heart-oriented. And uh, Dad goes along, and uh, uh, they, she loves reading the tombstones. I mean, serious tendencies there. I heard tell recently of a couple, like my parents, walking through the cemetery, and they noticed, they noticed this man that was on his knees in front of a tombstone going, why? 
Why did you have to die? Why? The couple came up and they were concerned and they, they laid a hand on his shoulder and they said, Sir, sir, we feel so bad for you. Was it a brother, a sister, a, 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 a mother? A, yeah. Who died? Uh, uh, and and, and the, the man looked up and he said, No, none of those. Uh, uh, it was my, my wife's first husband. Why did you have to die? Why did you have to die? Choosing the pathway of bitterness is playing the part of the fool. It was my first year pastoring here at Lakeside. And after a board meeting, I had a deacon look me in the eye and say, Pastor Phil, for years, I hated your guts. I'm not rephrasing it. Those are exact words. Okay. And you know what? For those years, those years, I never lost a moment of sleep. For those years, I never lost one bit of joy. For those years, I knew nothing about it. <laughs> I didn't know that was going on. Didn't bother me whatsoever, but it sure bothered him. It sure messed up his life. Bitterness, it's never solved any problems. I never know one issue or one iota of bitterness improving a marriage, improving a family, bitterness improving a church or a nation. You never can find one case, one account of bitterness solving any problem whatsoever. See, a PhD in bitterness is a degree in stupidity. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, God says, obey my word, then you will be prosperous and successful. If I was to sit down with our young adults who have their whole life before them, and they were to ask me, Pastor, what is the chief source for success? And I would look you in the eye and say, your personal relationships. Keep short accounts. Be a reconciler, a peacemaker. Be a forgiver. And don't allow bitterness to knock at your door. Yes. If you want a blessed life, if you want to be promoted from the prison to the palace, if you want to position yourself for divine favor and blessing, stay free. Get rid of bitterness. Bitterness, you see, paralyzes your prayer life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you enter your place of worship and you suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, leave immediately and make things right. Then and only then come back and work things out with God. And here's some good marriage counseling. Peter the Apostle said, uh, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And the wives would say, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Pastor, does the Bible say that? It sure does. You want to short-circuit the miraculous in your experience? You want to keep God from answering your prayers? Allow unforgiveness to crop up in your marriage. And in no way can God bless you or move in your experience with miracles. You know, I'll have people come in and, and, and uh, 
I'll have people come in and say, Pastor, pray for my marriage. Pray for a miracle in my family. Pray for a miracle in our home relationships. I said, I won't. I'll say, why? Because you haven't forgiven them yet. Forgive first, and then we'll pray for the miraculous. Until you forgive, you've shut the door on prayer being a pathway for the miraculous. Bitterness, oh, mark it down. An unforgiving spirit of bitterness will quarantine you from God's presence. Mark eleven twenty five. and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, and so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. All this goes even deeper. If you're walking with any ounce of bitterness within you, if you're walking with an unforgiving spirit, you alienate yourself, you quarantine yourself from the presence of a holy God. God cannot have fellowship with you. God cannot equip you. God cannot restore or heal or move in your experience. You have separated yourself from God. Unforgiveness is an impardonable sin. Did you know that? Just as long as you withhold forgiveness, just that long, God cannot forgive you. And if God cannot forgive us, there is no hope. We're on a highway to hell. This is how serious this issue of forgiveness and bitterness is about. Bitterness towards others is rebellion of the worst sort. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. An unforgiving spirit is not only disobedience. I need to warn you. An unforgiving spirit is pure rebellion. And if rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, I submit to you that bitterness is satanic. Satanic. God's plan for our lives is to be better rather than bitter. Mark it down by choosing real forgiveness in our relationships. I mean, even the world knows about forgiveness, but is it real? Is it according to God's strategy, God's prescription? Let's look, as we begin to wrap up, let's look at God's plan for real forgiveness. You see, real forgiveness is foundational in the kingdom of God. It's fundamental. It's basic. It's pivotal. Preacher, preacher, how can I forgive them for what they've done, how they've victimized me, how they have abused me? I'm often asked that question in the counseling chamber, and I take out a piece of paper, and I tell them to write down all that that person has done against them, and they begin writing. I'm giving away some secrets here. And while they're writing, I go around the corner in my office, and I get a ream 
of paper. For you non-office people, that means a whole brand new stack of fresh new paper that's wrapped up in package. And I bring that over to the table, and I drop it on my table, and I say, after you're done writing a list of all that they've done to you, I want you to write a list of all that you have done against God. I want you to write a list of every sin. I want you to write a list of every time you've disobeyed God. And he has what? Forgiven you. Paul says to us, forgive one another. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and wrath. Forgive one another as Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Freely you have received. Freely give. There it is. Real forgiveness is foundational. It's fundamental. It is at the very heart of the most prayed prayer around the world. What is the most prayed prayer around the world? The Lord's Prayer. And in the center, the heart of that prayer, what do we hear? Forgive us our what? Trespasses as we forgive those who trespass pass against us. The Father, God the Father, will not have children that are unlike himself. So let Jesus be Jesus in you and me. Real forgiveness doesn't wait for the feelings of forgiveness. It first forgives because it's prompted by obedience to God. I'm going to be a male chauvinist. I got your attention now. This might sound stereotypical. You need to understand I'm generalizing. After decades of pastoral ministry, I've discovered something. Who makes up more elementary school teachers, men or women? Who makes up more of the nursing occupation, men or women? Flight attendants. Uh, those who wait upon you at the restaurant. Women, by nature, are more other-centered. They're more loving. They're more tender. They're more nurturing. They're more caring. Can I hear an amen from the women? Thank God. God, women are mothers. Women make far greater mothers than men. Because they're more selfless. Amen, women? But there's a flip side. There's a two-edged sword that I've discovered. Because women are more caring, loving, sensitive, empathetic, and caring, the flip side is this. They can be more feelings-oriented. Now, I've had to counsel some men that are more in touch with their feminine side, and so it includes them as well here. But people that are more feelings-oriented have a harder time to forgive. Most guys, I'm generalizing, you have a tiff, you have a, a beef with some other guy, you go behind the school, you go behind the factory, and you do what? 
You duke it out. And it's over. It's done. <laughs> then you do it again the next day. And it's done. <laughs> But a woman, oh dear Jesus, <laughs> for her, forgiveness is not an event, it's a process. <laughs> she can wake you up in the middle of the night and you think it's an emergency and she said, you remember 11 years, 9 months ago when you forgot to give me a birthday card? The issue is this. True forgiveness, real forgiveness, biblical forgiveness is immediate. True biblical forgiveness is an act of your will, not your feelings. Honey, sir, ma'am, young person, if you're led around by your feelings, and much of the young millennial generation is, if you ascertain truth by your feelings, if, if, if you uh, uh, go by your feelings constantly, if feelings, emotions are the locomotive of the train of your life and the caboose is your will, what you should do, you will have total chaos in your life. We are called to be obedient to the word of the Lord. I've had, I've had counselees look me in the eye and say, I'll forgive when I feel like it. No, God's word says this in Ephesians chapter 4. God's word says, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Circle that word, foothold. Footholds become beachheads. Footholds become strongholds. You give old Slewfoot, the devil, Satan, an opening in your life through bitterness, malice, and anger, and hatred. And let me tell you, he will not settle for just a foothold. He wants a stronghold. He's a thief who has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to destroy you and send your soul to hell. Let us not misunderstand. An unforgiving spirit is no light matter. It gives an opening to the satanic, demonic participation in your life. You won't be able to make wise choices. You're being led by your feelings. You are diametrically opposed to the kingdom plan of God. You're acting in rebellion just as long, just as long as you fail to forgive. Just that long, he's setting up a beachhead, a foothold, a stronghold in your life. Act and the feelings will follow. Make the locomotive an act of your will to obey Jesus and those feelings of love and forgiveness. They'll come along. They'll follow. They need to be the caboose. Do you see that? Oh, mark it down with me. Mark it down with me if you would. Real forgiveness forgets. Real forgiveness forgets. Pastor, I'll forgive her. But I'll never forget what she said to me. And I hope she has an early grave. I've had, I've, had, I've had the saints say that to me. Pastor, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. And I look them in the eye and I say, then I hope you'll never sin. 
Because my Bible says that when he forgave us, he also forgot our sins. He remembers our sins against us no more. Your sins and my sins, the moment we ask for forgiveness, go into the ocean, the sea of God's forgetfulness. Hallelujah. There's one thing that God cannot do. He cannot remember our sins when they're under the blood of Jesus. Amen? Do you see that? We're called to be like the Father. To forgive and to forget. Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 4, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and pressing toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Hey, if you want to live bogged down by the past, if you want to live anchored to past regret, past failings, past sins, past hurts, hear me, honey. That's water over the dam. That's water under the bridge. That's spilt milk. You can't control that. What is done is done. Let go of it. Live forward. Look ahead. The best is yet to come. Commit it to Jesus. Amen. There it is. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Real forgiveness is freeing. I said real forgiveness is freeing. Can we talk? Real forgiveness is not really for the one that has hurt you. Real forgiveness does not condone their hatred. It doesn't condone their injustice. It doesn't whitewash their evil deeds towards you. Real forgiveness is really for you. Forgiveness cleanses you. Forgiveness heals you mentally, psychologically, physically, spiritually. It keeps you in right contact with a holy God, an almighty God. It puts you on the pathway of the miraculous. Forgiveness is really for you. Embrace it. Enjoy it. Even if you're boiling on inside and you would like to go out in the parking lot right now before they get out of church and ram their car and drive away. Even though those feelings are there, take your stand and say, I will not, I cannot, I shall not recant, I will not compromise, I will forgive in the name of Jesus. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to forgive them in the name of Jesus. Oh, Jesus, make the feelings come. And that's just about how stubborn you need to be in the faith, how steadfast you need to be in the faith. Paul said in Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ. God forgave you. Lastly, real forgiveness by faith releases the power of a greater forgiver. Joseph positioned himself for the miraculous. He positioned himself to be used mightily of God and see his dreams fulfilled. Joseph positioned himself for freedom, for healing, 
for promotion, for favor, for palace living. And he received it. But many times after people receive the palace blessings, they don't have the faith to enjoy it. How many do we know, how many celebrities do you know that they got it all and they died miserable? Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Robin Williams, Prince, and the list goes on and on and on. They had it all. And they died depressed, miserable. How could Joseph keep enjoying the palace blessings? The secret is solved when you learn the meaning of his first child's name. Does anyone know the name of his first child? Raise your hand. Nancy Johnson. Manasseh. Manasseh. You got it right, Nancy. Manasseh. What does the name Manasseh mean? It means God has caused me to forget. Let's look at the scripture verse quickly as we wrap up. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, oh, you need to underscore, highlight, circle this. It is because God, not human discipline, God, not Joseph, God, not circumstances, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. God, God. Cindy comes this morning to the keyboard again. If I had a dime for every time it has been spoken to me, I'd be a rich man. Pastor Phil? You weren't there, Pastor Phil. You have no understanding. Pastor Phil, you weren't brought up with abuse. You weren't brought up in a vicious home. You weren't brought up in a home where every night where my mother went to work and my, my stepfather would come into my bedroom. Pastor Phil, you don't know. And you're telling me to forgive. I've looked these in the eyes and I've said, I agree with you. You can't forgive. It's impossible. The hurt goes so deep. The evil is so insidious. The abuse is so great. It's impossible for you, in and of yourself, in and of your sheer human self, it's impossible for you to forgive. And that's why you need a greater forgiver to forgive through you, to let his forgiveness heal you, to free you, to cleanse you of the toxicity of that poison that is impinged upon your present and ruining all of your tomorrows. You need a, a greater forgiver. You need the one as he hung upon the cross. 
as they tortured him and they spat upon him and they ripped out his beard. You need the one who looked down at his haters and he prayed, Father, Father, forgive them for they know what, they know not what they do. You need that forgiveness of the greatest forgiver flowing through you. And as you open the door to the Holy Spirit, what He said He will do. And your situation will change. You'll be able to go to family reunions. You'll see that person. You'll be able to do business with them. You'll be able to to forbear as you forgive. How about it this morning? How will you choose? Will you choose to be bitter? Or will you choose to be better? The best is yet to come for those who choose better. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask and pray. His heads are bowed even right now. In the name of Jesus, I pray, O Lord, that you would come. Holy Spirit, you would heal. Holy Spirit, you would forgive through us. Stand with me this morning. Stand with me this morning. Sing that with us, Cindy. Amazing love, how can it be? You, my King, would die for me. Oh, sing it with her. Amazing love. joy to bow our heads or close our eyes how many of you here this morning you have been victimized you have been hurt you have been deeply offended you've been abused and by faith believing and by faith receiving you're raising your hand and you're not, you're determined. You're not going to open your life for a foothold for the enemy. You're going to open your life for a greater forgiver. Would you just lift up your hand right now? Yeah. Yes. 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 In the balcony and here on the main floor. W- would you join me? I want to pray for you. Would you join me up front here as Cindy and the team sings? Join me right now. If you raised your hand, join me right now. Amen. Pastors, deacons, prayer partners. Amen. You were Amen. Join us. Praise the Lord. 